Hi everyone and welcome back to a new season of Creatable Future with Ryder Tracy, an education podcast that explores ideas from industry through the lens of education to equip teachers to take their classrooms into the future. I'm Ryder Tracy, Head of Educational Transformation at Creatable, and in today's episode I'll be talking with Angie Wan. Angie is the 2022 New South Wales Young Woman of the Year and the co-founder of Consent Labs. Welcome Angie, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Ryder. So Consent Labs is a, is a non-profit providing workshops to spark conversations about consent and healthy relationships across Australia. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about that foundation story and, and how you at such a young age have been able to um, tackle such an important issue. Yeah, so we co-founded Consent Labs six years ago now. It feels crazy to say that it's been such a long time, but I was 19 and living on campus at university when I think issues around the lack of consent, particularly the prevalence of things like harassment and assault, really coloured many of the experiences that I was having and that was very much echoed by a lot of my peers at the time, whether they lived on campus at university, didn't go to university, but I think it was, you know, a unanimous experience. And at that time, I was having a conversation with uh, a good friend of mine, Joyce. We'd known each other since primary school. We went to the same high school, received the same sex education. And I think we're just taking a moment to reflect on what we'd learnt from our sex education and really critically ask ourselves, did this prepare us for the real world and the experiences that we had in the real world? And I think resoundingly the answer was no. Um, What we had been taught in sex ed was just completely removed from, I think, the realities that many young people have. And that was a unanimous feeling across so many of our peers. You know, either people didn't get any sex education or they got very little or they got something that felt really biological and not really about, you know, how relationships develop and how you can respect one another. Those conversations were really the catalyst of Consent Labs. We had identified that there was a real gap in terms of the consent education that young people were were receiving and that nothing was really being done to address it at that point in time back in 2016. And so we sort of looked at each other and we were like, should we give this a crack? Should we try and develop a consent education program? We had a really clear idea of of what we wanted out of a program, something that was really realistic, something that was um, youth-led and something that was really inclusive. And so with those sort of core tenants guiding us, we embarked on this six-year-long journey to to develop a program and, and build a business. What strikes me as interesting is the the courage in the conversation in the first instant. Like, here's a problem, but I've also got the trust and belief in my my friend, you know, my confidant. I think that's probably reasonably common. But then that next step to say, you know what, I'm going to put my hand up and do something about this and fix it, I think is really, really powerful. Um, th- there must have been moments of doubt or, or you know, how are we actually going to execute this that must have come, particularly in those kind of establishing years? How, how did you remain kind of resilient or overcome those challenges in, in starting? Yeah, I think we faced a lot of challenges in the initial years and there were many, many doubts, both 
internally. So self-doubts that I had about myself and whether I was the right person to do this, whether I could do this well, but also external doubts that we had to face. I think um, there was not a lot of trust or faith put into young people, you know, the ability for young people to build something worthwhile and worth taking a risk or a chance on. And we had many conversations between the years of 2018 to 2020 with high schools about the importance of consent education and the fact that young people wanted something better than what was currently being delivered. And we just got absolutely no traction. It was so incredibly difficult to even get a foot in the door to be able to even get a meeting with the people that were making decisions about sex and consent education, let alone actually convincing them to want to deviate from the status quo or want to take on a program that was youth-led like ours was. Um, So that was definitely challenging. Um, I think it was also really hard initially because myself and my co-founder Joyce were working on consent labs as a side hustle, to be honest, you know, we both had full-time studies and then I went into full-time work. And so it was always sort of like that juggling act and and asking ourselves, you know, can we really put into Consent Labs what it deserves in order to to be able to bring it to fruition? So, yeah, I think there were many self-doubts along the way, as well as those external doubts. And I mean, those still exist. I don't know if there'll ever be a point where I don't have self-doubt or I don't face external doubts, but Um, I think it's nice to be able to see traction and momentum building around this conversation. Most definitely. I think, you know, just looking at Consent Labs and with 10,000 students um, through annually, you know, I think you can be pretty confident about the traction you're getting and the momentum that it's gaining. You you mentioned in there, you know, about the youth-led component, you know, so I want to just kind of explore that a little bit further. So it'll be a bit of a two-part question. In the first bit, I'm curious, do you think that, maybe some of the key decision makers who would have been older than you at the time might have thought, well, what can this, you know, young, inexperienced person tell me that we don't already know, you know, um, and and how, like, do you think that played a role? Completely. I think, especially in those initial days when you haven't, I guess, built up as much credibility as an organisation yet, you're really starting from a why should I trust you? I'm older. I know way more than you do. You have so much to learn. And you're really having to straight off the bat overcome that and work 10 times harder to prove yourself. But we did, to be honest. We sort of anticipated that this would be a challenge and that many people would question our credibility, our expertise, um, and the evidence base of the program. And so we doubled down, to be honest, and we built relationships with um, industry experts from across a range of different sectors and they all vetted and endorsed our modules. So whenever we would inevitably get that pushback or that question from the older decision makers, we would be really well armed and and ready with, um, I guess, ammo, you could call it. Yeah, I think think that's really compelling. You know, you've identified the problem you know you've identified a solution you've hit a barrier of scale or awareness or blockers you know along that way and then thought okay 
what's letting us down here is people's perceptions of the evidence base. And so we're going to steer into that and make it a strength. And when you explore consent labs, and, and for everyone listening, I really strongly encourage you to do so, the evidence base is robust. Um, underpinning what sits here. And, and for young people listening, the idea is the first part, uh, but the, the follow through and the commitment to literature and evidence and research is what uh, gives you the foundation to make change. Completely. Um, so that's really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder, Angie, uh, about uh, how it works in practice when you, so the flip side is you've got uh, young people running some of these workshops and working with other young people, uh, presumably because it's more relatable and so they can have that communication and connection and trust and shared understanding. The risk, um, as one of those old key decision makers, you know, who's um, feeling particularly <laughs> old as I'm talking to you, um, sitting at the other side, I guess the, the, the risk in the back of my head, you know, that goes off is, oh, this is something really important what if they go out and through their inexperience say the wrong thing, you know? And um, I guess I'm just interested in uh, how you kind of mitigate that or tackle that or work through that. Yeah, completely. I think that's a really, really valid question. And it's a risk that, I mean, I still worry about every single day. I think the first part of it is really rigorous in-house training um, and whatever we do deliver in schools is actually scripted. So there's certain elements that can be freestyled and there's definitely room for anecdotes and for facilitators to bounce off the room. But we are really clear with our facilitators that um, what they're delivering is a script. And the reason for that is because this is a really highly sensitive area to be speaking to, as you said, Ryder. And we have chosen every single word in that script with excruciating amount of thought behind it. You know, how could this be conveyed by a victim survivor? Um, what about someone with, you know, someone who identifies as LGBTQ plus, you know, how are they going to think about the information that we're delivering? So every single word in that script has been placed in there for a reason and our facilitators embark on a really rigorous training program um, to make sure that, they know the script inside and out before we're comfortable with them um, delivering it in the real world. And one, I think, really important part is we send facilitators out in pairs and one person in that pair will be an experienced facilitator. So someone who's been with us for a long time, who's done X amount of engagements and we really, really trust them to be able to deliver our content well. Um, and then we'll pair them up with a baby or a more junior facilitator who's sort of learning the ropes, um, but who can really be guided um, by that more experienced facilitator should they not be sure, not know how to handle something. Um, but yeah, it is a real risk and one that we take really, really seriously. But I mean, I think ultimately having young people as our facilitators does so much good in terms of the delivery of this material in particular. Yeah, there's something um, very powerful uh, in the facilitator or teacher, uh, you know, having relevance to the audience. I, th I think that's um, a really powerful thing and a really interesting kind of differentiated approach from Consent Labs that I think has clearly been really successful. I've, I've got a question for you around age appropriateness. I, I imagine when uh, when you're reaching out to a school or a community, you know, or students, um, that there'd be quite a 
a range of views. You know, different people would probably feel reasonably strongly about, uh, yes, this is important, but the right time is at the start of uni or the right time is five or the right time is whatever it is. I'm trying to choose like extremes on the kind of scale there. But um, how do you, uh, well, two parts, I guess, the first being, um, what age are you targeting? And the second part, um, you know, sort of why and how do you deal with people that think sort of outside of that box? So we work predominantly in the high school space. That's really our area of expertise, um, as well as with university students. That's who we work with in terms of young people, but we also work with parents and teachers. There definitely is valid reason to start talking about consent before high school years and um, I know many schools that do start talking about principles around consent from as young as sort of the kindergarten age all the way up through to high school but we really work in that high school space. I think in terms of how do you know what's age appropriate so there has been so much global research done about consent and respectful relationships education for us to be able to fall back on UNESCO has a really comprehensive guide on the principles in terms of how you should teach consent and respect for relationships education, as well as the different ages that you can start to introduce different topics. But I think the second part to that to that question is um, it also really depends on the school, the school context. You know, I can sort of come in and suggest what we've run with other schools, but it doesn't mean that one size fits all. And it's often a conversation about what do you as teachers think is most relevant for your students? You know, you know them better than I do as an outsider. Yeah, it's really about the relationship between us as an external provider and the school, making sure that we work with them to deliver something that's really tailored and relevant to their specific cohorts. I, I think that that differentiation and context would be very much appreciated. You, you mentioned um, just then the the teacher support and parent support, you know, so there's student agency, but you're also kind of catering to the whole ecosystem uh, in there. Could could you unpack that a little bit more for me? Yeah, I think, you know, we're ultimately pushing for change at a broader societal level. I don't want young people or anyone in society to have to experience the, the prevalence of harassment and assault that we currently do today. And so I think in order to, to speed up that end goal. Um, Everyone really needs to be brought along the journey and parents and teachers are obviously such a big part of a young person's education and how they start to view the world and view relationships. So I think it would be remiss of us to think that, you know, we are the guiding light and the only people who can give young people this education. I think there's a lot of goodwill with parents and educators. They want to be able to be a part of this really positive conversation, but I think they often are missing the education themselves. You know, they are also a byproduct of the education system that they went through. They also missed out on good consent and sex education and are just really handing down the social norms that they've learnt over time to their children or to their students. If we're also able to give parents and educators the language, the understanding of what respectful relationships are and how that should be taught to children or to students, then ultimately we're just pushing towards the same end goal but faster. 
I think that's really powerful. A lot of the research around things like mobile phones or when you access Facebook, when uh, the whole community or friendship group have the same rules at home, um, the rules are more likely to stick rather than, oh, well, let's go to so-and-so's house because they've got a mobile phone and they're allowed on Minecraft and they're allowed to do X, Y, and Z. You know, that probably is agnostic of content. You know, if there's a common understanding in the community and um, the surrounds and the same messages coming from all vantage points. Yeah, um, like it's being reinforced. Yeah, yeah. One thing that constantly surprises me is, you know, sometimes we'll deliver sessions in schools and parents will be concerned about their child receiving respectful relationships education. And I can completely understand their point of view but when we also talk to parents in tandem with speaking to students, parents, I think, start to understand the value of this um, education and the way in which we at Consent Labs approach it being, you know, evidence-based and grounded in respect and empathy. And so I'm much more happy for their child to sit in on our sessions. And I've actually had parents off the back of our parent seminar say, I want my child in this session. Like I don't want their cohort to miss out on this education. So I think it's actually quite important to bring um, parents and teachers along on this education journey as well as young people. I wonder um, if in the sort of six years that you've been doing this and sort of leading the field, there's been a fair evolution in technology or the accessibility of technology. I know it's a you know one of your foundation kind of components at Consent Labs. Could you just sort of unpack I guess the trends and and what consent via technology you know the kind of implications for that are I'm sure there's people listening you know that would appreciate just a little bit of grounding in that because it's very difficult to stay abreast of the technology as it advances every time you work it out there's something new and different. So for parents and, and educators I would say it is really difficult to stay on top of every single new app that is out there and that your students or your child is using. But I think the most important thing is that young people know that they can talk to a trusted adult if anything goes wrong and they know the various support services available to them if something does go wrong. So as an example, like every single social media app will have its own in-house reporting function. So if a photo is uploaded that your child or student isn't happy with, they can report it within the app. But outside of that, there are other really great resources such as eSafety that you can turn to for even faster, even more comprehensive um, reporting functions, as well as just being aware of things such as Headspace or the mental health care plan, which you can access via your, your GP. So yeah, as a parent or as an ed- educator, I'd say don't feel the pressure to be up to date with every single app. I think young people do understand the risks of being on each platform because they live their lives on it. I think it's just making sure that you are keeping that that open line of communication. So if anything goes wrong when a young person is using technology of whatever form, they know that they can turn to someone and not be judged. Yeah, that's a um yeah, it's a challenging one, particularly I'll put my parent hat on for that one. You know, like I, I love to think that the lines of communication are open, but I think the the initial reaction is, oh, well, don't use the app, you know, delete it, you know, get it off the app or get off the, you know, whatever device they're accessing it on. And of course, that creates some kind of social isolation or some kind of, you know, disconnect there. So I, I think 
that message of keep the line of communication open, don't be judgmental, be constructive and helpful and supportive and easy to say, hard to do, I think, you know, is probably one of those ones. Yeah, I was just thinking that as you were speaking, definitely easier said than done. And I mean, I'm not a parent, but I think the way that we approach education is from that harm minimization point of view. So it is probably inevitable that young people are going to be online using social media apps. And I think it is much more effective and the research backs this up for them to be able to understand that they can make choices and for them to know where to access support if something does go wrong, rather than just say, I'm banning you from all of these things. Because I think it creates, you know, that curiosity within them to go and seek it without them letting you know. And then if something does go wrong, then they can't come to you and look for support because they haven't told you in the first place. So I think we always come from that, yeah, that harm minimization approach of it's better that young people know their rights and they know their options so they can make those informed choices. I think it's excellent, excellent advice, most definitely. One of the things we look at closely is like employability and and jobs into the future. Um, And I'm really fascinated with your role because you've got such purpose with your employment. Not only do you have purpose with your employment, but you kind of created your own job. How important is having a job uh, that makes the world a better place? That's actually It's an interesting time to ask me that question, Ryder, because I, so as I said before, I worked on Consent Labs as a side hustle and I had a full-time role in the banking industry and that's where I thought I would be for the next sort of 40, 50 years of my career. I never really let myself believe that Consent Labs could be a not-for-profit that existed sustainably in the world and that I would be the one leading consent labs. I'm actually currently on a 12-month sabbatical from my job in the banking industry. Um, And I'm right about now coming up to that point where I have to make a choice. Do I go back to the banking industry or do I stay on at consent labs? One thing that I can't ignore is that feeling of impact and seeing real impact. You know, I used to be a part of an organization that was thousands of people large and it ultimately did good things in the world, but I wasn't the one directly enacting that impact. I just felt like a really small cog in the wheel. But I think it is so nice to be able to see the direct impact that we make at Consent Labs. Like there's nothing better than being on the ground and speaking with young people who are all so passionate about consent education and to be able to unite on that front and have a conversation and for them to say, thank you for the work that you do. You know, we've been asking for this and wouldn't have received it otherwise. It's just incredible. I think back to all those times when we were really doubted by those older decision makers and to see how far we've become and and young people really leading this charge is like, I'm so proud. I'm so proud. Uh, it shines the joy of it shines through in your voice it's um it's really <laughs> nice to to talk to you there i think i would say um whatever decision you make you should be really proud about the impact you've already had and will continue to have no matter what you do so thank you for all of that work it's awesome look i'm gonna you nearly kind of answered this one for me but i i like to conclude with like a hard question so the last question is, um, uh, imagine this amazing scenario where every 10-year-old in the whole world is going to go to one lesson with you. 
and they're going to walk out with whatever learning intention you were trying to communicate to them, what would be the one thing you would want every 10-year-old to walk away with? Mm, I think I did touch on it a little bit, but I would say confidence in yourself and in using your voice. I think particularly for young people and even young people who are identify with a minority group, I think that's really important. It took me a long time to realise, I mean, even on a personal level that I had boundaries, that I could be the one to decide what my boundaries were. And if I vocalise them, then the other person had to respect that. And that was my right. So I think even at that really personal level, understanding that you are allowed to use your voice and that should be respected. And then even, you know, a bit more broader than that personal level, young people really do have the power to enact social change or change full stop. I was talking to a young person last night actually and they were telling me about this new program that they've implemented at their school which is all around Asian Australian discrimination and I just thought that was incredible. Like I haven't heard about a program like that being delivered anywhere else and the fact that a young person pioneered this in their school because they were particularly passionate about it I just thought was incredible and it wasn't something that I would have done when I was in year 12 or in high school yes if I was going to speak to every 10 year old and they could walk out with with one skill or knowledge of something I think it would be be confident in using your voice because it it can be really powerful in making change oh Wow, I just need to put a full stop and stop talking. That was such a powerful finish. Uh, Angie, thank you so much for your time today. You're um, an absolute inspiration and I'm sure that everyone that listens to this will uh, will feel the warmth and the joy that you bring to the conversation but also the purpose and uh, focus um, for something that's really important. So um, thanks for letting us walk side by side with you for a little while this afternoon and um, wish you all the best into the future and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Ryder. It's been a lot of fun. Today's conversation with Angie was really authentic. I admire the courage, drive and resilience that has gone into founding Consent Labs, particularly her attitude towards doubling down on evidence and literature to overcome people doubting her credibility. The approach to a shared understanding between parents, teachers and students is a powerful reminder of how important a common understanding is to sustainable change. And I was compelled by the rationale for workshops delivered by young people for young people. Finally, Angie left us with the importance of self-belief, activating student voice and taking action for a better tomorrow. And they're all things that I can get behind. Thanks for listening to Creatable Future. Leave us a review and let us know what you liked, what you didn't like and what you'd like more of. Reviews help us reach more listeners so that we can keep bringing you more awesome conversations. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can keep up to date with each episode as they come out. If you want to hear more about how Creatable is connecting schools with industry through our professional learning library, head to creatablefuture.com. This episode was recorded on Darawal and Darug country. Catch you next week.